Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. That's Ephesians chapter 6. Once you've turned there, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word here. Good morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Servants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and therefore is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we we turn our attention to your attention upon us one more time here. We thank you, God, for gathering us here in this place. Um, we, we desire to really believe that you've brought us here, that you have words, like real communication that you want to download and, and, and bring to us today from you. And that's, um, that's hard to believe, yet it's true. The God of heaven is going to accomplish and wants to accomplish his will here on earth in this time and in our lives and wants to speak to us. God, That's um, we're here banking on that expectation. We're not here to listen to another sermon by another man with perspective. We're not just here because of, of religious routine. None of those reasons are worth it. But if we would sacrifice our morning to be here because you promised to meet us here and you're going to speak to us God and you're going to meet us here then this is more than worth it and so attune our hearts to your spirit help us be freed from the distractions that the enemy would want to sow into our minds during this time and Holy Spirit, come and speak and lead and move. Jesus, be at the center of this time, and ultimately we ask, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you want to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All righty. Well, in case you weren't here last week and maybe you've been gone... You didn't think it was possible, but we've made our way into chapter 6 of Ephesians. We have been in this book for the better part of this year, walking through the incredible words that the Apostle Paul wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to a first century church, much like ours, a young church in a difficult context. Paul is writing as a pastor, really seeking to teach this community and lead this community into the fullness of life in Christ. This is the big theme of Ephesians. 
that the work that God has done through Jesus on the cross is something that doesn't just rescue us and reconcile us, but it also repositions us. That, that through the gospel, you and I are now in Jesus. You are in the best possible scenario through the work of Christ. Let's just, let's just let that saturate our souls this morning. You're in good hands. You're in a good position. Paul is teaching about how to be sure of that position. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about being seated. That's the big idea. That's like the language used to describe like what you're doing right now. You're not doing anything except actively receiving God's word. Well, that's kind of chapters 1 through 3 is being seated. Not, not getting too busy yet. Not, not being too spiritually active yet. Not until you first are saturated fully in your identity. Not until first you have received all the truth of the gospel so that you can now live out of it and not for it, right? The Christian faith is not an identity lived into. Like, i got to be good enough so that God will accept me. i got to make myself acceptable. No, the Christian faith is an identity lived from. It's a position I'm in that I live in and from. And that's chapters 4 through 6. 1 through 3 is all about being seated and getting that order straight, Okay? You're a son, you're a daughter, you're adopted, you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're, you're alive, all these truths. And then chapters 4 through 6, there's a shift towards walking, towards living it out, towards practicing it. And Paul has been exploring that theme here in this section. Specifically, Paul is concerned in chapters 5 through chapter 6, um, we, we've been saying it this way, like when Paul is going to talk about how God changes our life, He's not just so concerned with like the social you in society that's like trying to be a good upstanding Christian when someone cuts you off in traffic. Like that matters, okay? Like don't tell people they're number one like they tell you, okay? Like, and like how you, you are at the grocery store. Like, like that all matters. It matters in a dark world how you, how you shine as a light um, in society. But, but Paul's like what God is most concerned with is the true you. Not, not just who you are in society, not who you project yourself to be as a good, you know, upstanding Christian man or woman. But he's, Paul starts to look into the arena, these, these three arenas that actually tell the most about you, which is really scary and intimidating, right? And it's the arena of your marriage, your family, and your work life. Like, Paul's like, I, Paul's all up in our business, you know what I'm saying? He's like right here. And he's like, who are you at home? What, who are you in your most deep and meaningful relationships? That's who God is concerned with transforming. Not just some public persona, but, but God is concerned with the real you. He's forming the real you. And those are some of the three most probably revealing places that determine the real me. My, my relationships with my significant other. My family dynamics with mom and dad and children, like that's its own thing. Talked about that last week. And, and then now, as we get to the second part of chapter 6, Paul is going to talk about work in Christ, your, the vocational sphere. Um, each aspect of Ephesians is about another area of life in Christ, and this section's work in Christ. Now, uh, a few months ago, we were in Ephesians 2, we talked about works plural, in Christ. But here, as we talk about singular, work in Christ, we're not talking about this like in a spiritual sense. We're, we're talking about, again, like your vocation. Your, this section is about your job in Christ. Your nine to five, okay? How you do your work. 
Um, let me say this. Uh, this is the context into which a first century Ephesian would have read, understood, and applied Paul's words here in Ephesians 6 about bondservants and masters. In that culture, as they're hearing Paul say these words, let me say it, they're not looking at this through a 21st century lens like we do that has haunting familiarity with really evil forms of slavery. I mean, all forms of slavery are evil. But it can be really easy to look at this and sort of import our cultural context upon the text. And, and, and that's not what's going on here. But back then, in that time, the institute of a bondservant, the, the relationship between a bondservant and a master, it, it was not a, an oppressive racial discriminat- a discriminative relationship, but it was uh, more of a social one, a vocational one. It was a financial institution. Um, in that context, contrary to what we're largely familiar with, slavery w- was often voluntary. That's something that's interesting to note. Uh, in that culture, to become someone's bondservant was like, it was one of the most secure careers. You had a place to live. You had food to eat. You had a future. At this point, one-third of the Roman Empire, 70 million people likely are slaves, and they're, they're functioning in this vocational let me say, broken vocational system. Uh, and, and for a lot of them, if it wasn't wilf, uh, willing or elected themselves, it was a matter of financial hardship. Like, I had gotten myself into a bad place financially. I'm upside down in some way. I owe somebody money. So think of, like, indentured uh, servitude. Like, I'm going to work my debt off. I'm going to work for you. Uh, that's the context here that Paul is writing to. And that's important to note because we know with our, again, haunting history in our nation, with the African slave trade today, the, the 27 million slaves, humans that are enslaved through human trafficking, we, we can look on at something like this and only have that lens. But it's important to note, as also let me say this, especially because um, in the Deep South, hundreds of years ago, slave owners would use passages like Ephesians, right? And they would use this text. I'm thinking of the movie 12 Years a Slave, where this verse is used, um, misused, we should say, for abusive, oppressive reasons. But that, the context here matters. The context of what going, is going on there in Ephesus, in, in terms of this institution, is worlds apart from what we're familiar with. Um, now, that being said, let me back up for a second. It's still a broken, sinful institution. The, the dynamic that Paul is writing into here, where someone's life career uh, is, involves them being the slave of another individual, uh, this is the product of the fall. This is not a, uh, a pre-fall situation. When God created mankind to work in the garden, this is, this is not what God had in mind. In fact, in the new heavens and new earth, we won't have dynamics of this. And, and let me say this, too. The, the scriptures are consistent the tone and the, and the position of God in the Bible, despite how people have misused the scripture, misread the scripture, um, all from, from the beginning to the end, we see that God's position is, it's not just that God isn't pro-slavery. The Bible isn't pro-slavery. Uh, God himself revealed in Christ, the scriptures echo this idea that God is pro-liberty. He's pro-liberty. He's pro-freedom. God reveals himself in the book of Exodus, for example. 
the way that he reveals himself to his people is as the one who delivers the enslaved. It's like, how's it going? I'm here to set the captives free. In fact, that's the title that's used of Jesus, the Messiah. That's one of the promises about Jesus, that he would come on the scene and he would set the captives free. And we see that ethic displayed throughout the New Testament. So, so no, the Bible is, is not pro-slavery. In fact, all the true abolitionist move, movements in history were motivated by the Christian faith. It was the scriptures themselves, the, the view of the, of the dignity of mankind made in God's image, created with certain rights and freedoms that was based on the truths of God's word that led to, I think especially in the UK with William Wilberforce, and how it was principles in scripture that led them to engage the injustice of slavery in their time. Uh, this is Paul's words, by the way, because like, this is Paul here talking about servants and masters. We're going to talk about why he's doing that in a second. But just to make some things clear, because we, we need to know what the Bible's not saying before we can read what it is saying. A lot of times we assume or we project upon it what we think it's saying when it's not saying that. So, like, if you're wondering how does the Apostle Paul, who's writing about bond servants and masters here in Ephesians, like, how does Paul feel about slavery? Like, how does he feel about that whole thing? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes it really clear. He's like, okay, were you a slave when you were called? He says, don't let it trouble you. In other words, don't, don't let it bog you down. If that's a situation you're in, uh, Paul's later going to say, I want to remind you, you're free in Christ. So don't let that bog you down. But then he says, although if you can gain your freedom, you should do that because no one should be a slave, right? That's, that's Paul's position. It's pretty clear here in 1 Corinthians 7. So, so with that lens, we know what Paul's not saying. The question then becomes, well, what is Paul up to here in Ephesians chapter 6? I mean, I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm like, why doesn't verse 9 say, masters, Christian masters, don't have slaves. Don't do that. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what is Paul doing here? Why isn't he in... We could ask a few other questions. Why isn't he kind of going through the throat, uh, for the throat here? And, I mean, there's a couple directions we can go with this, but just to continue to help provide some helpful context of wh wh where we land here in Ephesians, um, first and foremost, there have been throughout history, especially in the history of the Roman Empire, a, a variety of, of movements where slaves revolted against the injustice of slavery in the Roman Empire. Um, again, not the same institution that we're familiar with, a vocational one, but still there have been great slave revolts. And Rome, have you heard of Rome? You see the, the thing going around right now on the internet where it's like how many times in a week does a guy think about the Roman Empire? Okay, apparently it's like how many of you guys think about the Roman Empire once a week? Let me see. That, isn't that amazing? Tobias, to I didn't say once an hour, bro, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, so Roman Empire... As, as many gentlemen uh, resonate with it, this dominant empire, it, it was known to immediately squash and snuff out any bit of resistance. Uh, and in that culture, just as our modern culture runs on electricity, that time, the, the backbone of the economy of Rome was this institute of bond servants and masters. It, it's the economy ran on the backbone of this institution. And... and the goal of a Christian in that time is not primarily just social reform, it's heart transformation that will lead to social reform, that will lead to God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven as it begins to invade our lives. 
And it was a challenging task for Christians in this moment. If you could just think about it, Christians literally at this moment, as Paul's writing this letter, they're being thrown to the lions through faithful witness, because of faithful witness. In, in a culture that said, hey, there's many gods, like you could all have your gods, just don't infringe on anybody else's god, just have your fun god, but worship theirs too. Christianity come on the, came on the scene and boldly proclaimed that there is one true living God. In a culture where Caesar was Lord, and to deny that was treason, the church said, no, Caesar's a parody. Jesus is the reality. Jesus is Lord. And, and also, you think about Christians at this time, it's like they, they were already countercultural in so many ways. They're, they're a people that we're going against like the entertainment norms of that culture. Like how that culture would find pleasure in entertainment was often through drunkenness and prostitution. And most people came to Christ and that's like what they did on the weekends. It's like, yeah, drunkenness and prostitution. What are you up to this Saturday? You know, like that was how they functioned. And, and they come to Christ and most of Paul's letters are like, hey, you're not of the world anymore. So your, your life is, is no longer marked along the norms of the stream of culture, you're going against the stream. You're going really the way of heaven. You're, you're so a counterculture people that said there's one true living God and, and that Caesar is Lord. And these people, you know, they were already looking weird to the culture and they make a habit of gathering together weekly to drink the blood and eat the body of their Lord. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what's happening? And they're just eating the body and drinking the blood of their Lord? Like, culturally speaking, people were trying to wrap their mind around what to do with these Christians, and oftentimes they were seen as a threat, and so they were martyred. And, and so it's interesting. So Paul here, he's using wisdom. We, we see in later writings, we know Paul's heart is the reversal of this broken institution. But, but instead of, this is really cool, instead of, failing to demolish this institution by calling for slave revolts, Paul goes the way of the kingdom, which is to undermine and subvert the structures of society through Christian living. Instead of the focus being on, here's how you demolish this broken institution, Paul's like, I'm not so much concerned with the cultural form. We are filled with broken cultural forms all around us. Here's how they change through individual hearts being transformed by the gospel. Hearts are transformed. Homes get transformed. Culture gets transformed, right? Maybe we say hearts get transformed. Homes get transformed. Churches get transformed. And then culture gets transformed. That's the way of history. That's the way that God has used the Christian faith. And so it's important to see that Paul's words here, it's, it's a context of him really being more concerned with, with how the Christian is living within these societal functions and again as we said how they're doing their work and there's principles here for this these first century ephesians of of how they can do their work now in christ i just want to say like if these principles are going to be true for a broken institution like slavery how much more are these principles going to be true for your and my work and, and that's where this really comes to bear you know the average person spends statistics show 70% of their life, I don't mean to depress you this morning, and hopefully at the end of this message you get excited, but 70% of your life will be spent doing your work. 
70%. Um, that's a strong portion of your life. Yet how few of us account that 70% of whatever you do for work as something that's in Christ. I mean, we say things all the time like, my life is now God's and I belong to him and Jesus is the king of my life. Well, shouldn't 70% of your life that belongs to Jesus be under him? You think he would be involved with that 70% of your life? You, you get where I'm going with this? And the reason I'm making the point and, and almost like uh, exaggerating it is because most of us don't think this way about life in Jesus. We think of the sacred and holy things on Sunday. That's where Christ is. And then I leave the sacred holy thing and I go into my Monday. And the Lord is not there. Let me tell you, he is not in the place. Okay. I wish Jimmy would come to my workplace and lead worship every morning. You know, like, this is how we're prone to think. Listen, it's no wonder so many Christians are bored in their faith. Who would be excited about a relationship with God that only has to do with a small percentage of your life? It's no wonder. It's no wonder Christians aren't excited about going to work. There's other reasons, I'm sure. But how much would that shift if I thought to myself, Jesus, you're not just Lord of the seemingly spiritual things. You're Lord of my whole life. You're king, and being king means everything's under you, even my work, especially my work. That'll get you excited when you start to see your work in a new light. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage. He's showing how the gospel, the work of Christ, the power of the Spirit, discipleship to Jesus, it's leading us to approach our work in a whole new way. To, to get rid of that like 70% nothingness that has nothing to do with God mindset to kind of enter into a whole new space with that. And so he gives a couple principles, again, that if they apply to servants, how much more will they apply? Maybe you're like, I feel like a servant at my workplace. That's okay. But if they apply to the context of a bond servant and a master in that broken institution, how much more will they apply to whatever your nine to five is? And here's a couple of those principles that the gospel will transform with our work. The first category is work authority. It's the first thing that Paul says the gospel is going to transform. This is the first area of our life as it pertains to whatever your work is, whatever your work environment looks like, whether you're someone in authority or for most of us, we're people under authority. I actually just would wonder, just by a division of the room, how many of you guys are over people at your workplace? Like, not in a bad way, but just, okay, a couple of you. Want, we're getting a little bit more bold about our leadership. There we go. It's going up, okay? You, you, okay, you, you have employees, okay? How many of you guys, would, maybe it's the same people, would also say you're under authority at work? Jimmy, don't raise your hand too high, bro, okay? I'm a good boss, all right? <laughs> um, a lot of us fall in either one of these two dynamics. Others of us fall into both of them. We've all worked for different bosses before. Their names just kind of flood through my head quickly, personally. We've all had different employees and people that have worked for us before. But this is going to be the first area that Paul says Christ is going to transform how we go to work. It's going to transform the, the, the dynamics of authority. And, and, and here's another way to think about this. Through Christ, there's a whole new way to be in and under authority. Whole new way. How I do my work as it pertains to my authority and my leadership and my managerial positions and my, my being led and my being under authority is transformed by the gospel. Um, 
what makes this so significant, Paul's verses here to servants and masters, is the context that it falls in as it pertains to like the, the social norms of authority in that culture. There's, there's authority, like we know what authority dynamics are. You ever, had, you ever had a boss that was just a power tripper, authority dynamic guy that's just like, get me out of here, okay? There's authority dynamics. And, and there's norms of man. There's norms of this world. This is what Paul has been writing about. He's been writing about how, as a Christian now, I don't approach authority the same way I used to. So he starts with, remember this? He starts with husbands and wives. He talks about this dynamic. This is earlier in chapter 5. He's like, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husband's the head of the wife is also Christ the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. And in that culture, there was, there was no, like in our culture, we read that, we're like, <gasps> in that culture, it was just like, yeah, okay, yeah. That was the norm. There was no gasp in the room when Paul said this because in that culture, women were expected in a subservient way, demeaning way, to submit to their husbands. Culturally speaking, um, men were often much older than their wives, and, and their wives were essentially there for financial logistic reasons, inheritance reasons, uh, manage the household reasons. The husband would, would actually spend most of his time at the, at the brothel, satisfying his pleasure with harlots. So submit, it was like, submit to your husbands. It was like in that culture that was like, yeah, that's, that's what we're expected to do. Then Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, today, in the Western context, in the American church context, we read that, and like you, women are like, yeah, of course, give yourself for me, bro. That's what you do. It's like, give up yourself for me. Right? That's what we do. Like, a husband goes, hey, the Bible says submit, okay? And it's like the wife goes, well, the Bible says to die, so why don't you die right now? All right? All right? Die. You got to understand, this was radical and offensive. Husbands, you exist for the good of your wife. Use your authority and leadership in service to her. Don't, it's, it's, it's about responsibility and caring for those God has put in your life. And then you get to the next one, and Paul says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Amen? Okay, I, was, I, I set it up two weeks in a row. Obey your parents. Amen. I'll throw the amen in there. And this was odd. It's like, yeah, kid, kids, do what you're told. That was common. In that culture, kids didn't have any rights whatsoever. So look how revolutionary this is. Then Paul says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Dads, care about how you're making your kids feel. This is called subversion. This is called undermining power structures. This is called the way of Jesus. And then you have the relationship between an employee and employer. An employee, yeah, do what your boss tells you. But then it says, masters, do the same thing. Listen to them. Care for them. They're now your brother in Christ. This is completely flipping the script, and this is, again, the way of Jesus. Jesus taught this way. As he's trying to teach his disciples authority, the context here is the disciples are like, they're, they're, they're classic dude in authority, okay? And they're like, how do we leverage this whole power thing for more for me? 
how do I get more out of this? That's the whole goal here. And Jesus is like, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it. You're a great little disciple, but you need to pay more attention, okay? And so he tells them, like, following me is going to be following a whole new way of leadership. He says that, that Jesus called them to himself, and he says, you know, that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, we look at authority and culture, they use their authority in a lordship way, and they lord it over people entrusted to them. And their great ones exercise their authority. It's like they take advantage of people, and they pull the authority card to get their way. He goes, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. This is now the principle of a master that he has to adopt. Yet it shall not be among you. Be a servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see the upside-down way of the kingdom? So now masters are being like, completely challenged in what they're used to. It's like, hey, master, you're the servant now. Employer, you're there to lead through sacrifice, example, and service. And whatever position you have, it's a gift of grace that you're to steward for the good of others. Have you ever seen this visual? I like this illustration. I think I, I first started using this in like 2012 as a high school minister in my little VGA projector screen. Um, I, I love this visual. You have the way of the world versus the way of the kingdom. The way of the world says the boss is basically there to be carried by those that do the work. This is that way of authority. But I just love the visual here where the leader is leading the way in sacrifice and service. A whole, just a visual there to display what we're saying. So there's a visual of being in authority that's different now, that Paul has been subverting. But there's also a different way to be under authority. I mean, yeah, women were all, knew the, the, the expectation that like, okay, there's a leadership structure here and I'm going to... My husband exists to die for me, but I'm going to honor and follow his leadership. But I'm going to do it now. Here's a di- this, was, this was culturally radical. You're not just going to do it because it's your duty. You're going to do it because it's your worship. I'm going to do it unto the Lord. And then kids are told, obey your parents in the Lord. And then, and then Paul quotes from the Torah to say, like, look at God's word. He's worth being trusted. You know, like, do it in light of God. And then he's going to tell Servants here, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh and sincerity of heart as to Christ. So we we have a word there to people in authority, but to those of you that have a boss, the best employee that you can be under that authority is, listen, is to be an employee submitted to a higher authority that sees yourself under the employment of King Jesus ultimately. And when it's hard to submit, you go, hey, they're not worthy of this but I'm doing this unto you as an act of worship. Submission is, by the way, not the same thing as agreement. I agree, therefore I submit. That's agreement. Submission is when I disagree, and yet I worship the Lord in honor of that God-given position. So, work authority. Another thing that Paul says, this is also really relevant, is work identity is transformed through the gospel. How we live in and under authorities changed in Jesus. So we approach our work now differently in the way of Jesus, subverting the social norms, the cultural norms of authority. But another big hang-up for a lot of us with our work is how tangled we can get with our identity with what we do. Do you know what I'm talking about? And some of you guys, you don't even have a big job in career. You're in college, and you're like, so much of your identity is tied to your career that you haven't even got to yet. And let me just say, like, you're putting hope in something that's not going to deliver. 
All right? And Paul's going to say something really significant here. He's going he's to talk about some really life-changing things. He says, bondservants, you're, you're being obedient to your masters according to the flesh and sincerity of heart. You're doing this as bondservants of Christ. And then he, when he speaks to masters, he's like, care for them. He's like, because you have a master too, to the master. I love that. What Paul does in this verse with these two roles of authority is he levels them. He's like, regardless of who's in charge here, Jesus is ultimately in charge. So, so the master is just a fellow servant with a little more authority. And he's leveling it out. And, and you need to hear like how significant this was in that culture. Like, in that culture, much like ours today, your identity, who you were, the value of who you were was directly connected to where you fell in the social class system, your career, what you contributed to society or, or how much livestock you had. You know what I'm saying? And that Bank of America, Israel.com, okay? That's weird. So... Your identity was where you fell in the social totem pole, like, like who you were, your career defined you. It, it, it determined how high or how low you were in that society. There's not a much lower place to be than a servant. And Paul takes the top dog among the people of God, and he says, you're a servant too. He levels it. The social strata that, that we can also do in this room where we, we separate ourselves, we discriminate. We do it all the time based on religious differences. We do it all the time based on ethnic differences. It's called racism. We do it based on, we do it based on gender differences. And we do it based on class differences. We ascribe someone's, how much are you worth is what we ask, don't we? How much are you worth? That's what we ask. Picture the scene there in Ephesus. You have a slave and a master sharing together in worship. Receiving God's word. You, you might have, listen, you might have a slave leading worship. Teaching the Bible study. So in some sense, the slave has authority over the master in the church. Isn't that wild? You have this whole new community of people that are no longer defined by the differences that divide them, but they're defined by the Savior that unites them. For there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Isn't that awesome? We're one family. One of the best examples of this uh, in the Bible, actually, I love, Paul, Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 7. I think this is so cool. Paul's like, he's dropping bars here, bruh. Here's what he says. He says, for he who is called in the Lord, look how he levels it. He's like, okay, he's talking to a group of people at church. Some are slaves, some are free. He goes, whoever's a slave in the Lord, he goes, don't worry. You might be a slave, but you're the Lord's freed man. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. So you're free. But if you're like, well, I'm free, well, well you're Christ's slave. I love that. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Paul's like, let's level this thing out. There's no more of this game where we try to gain a higher level of social status among our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all equally thankful for Jesus. We're all equally saved by grace through Jesus. 
We're, we're all uniquely and fearfully and wonderfully made by Jesus. Created for our own part to play in the world. In his kingdom. As his servants. There's a great example of this. Man, I wish I had more time for this. Uh, there's a book in the Bible you probably have never read. Because it, and not because it's too long, but because it's very short. It's the book of Philemon. Maybe you've read it. The book of Philemon is one chapter long. So if you're like, I don't like to read the Bible. Just, it's a chapter. Start there, okay? In the book of Philemon, this is a, an, an awesome story, okay? Paul, let me back up. There's a servant named Onesimus. Onesimus has done some shady things. We don't know what he did. We don't know the, the nature of his crimes. But it was enough to leave town, maybe with some of his master's possessions. Who knows? Onesimus ends up in prison with a guy named Paul. It's a good cellmate to have. Usually when Paul's there, the walls fall down and you get out. It's actually pretty nice usually. Paul's in, uh, Paul's in, uh, Onesimus lands in jail, meets this guy named the Apostle Paul. Paul leads this guy to Christ. Just tell me more of your story. Well, here's my sins. He confesses his sins. He goes, yeah, and I, I left my, I betrayed, sinned against the family that took me in and was caring for me. Uh, his name's Philemon. Paul's like, Phil? <laughs> Phil's your amazing? Like, Phil's my boy. Philemon, like, we went, we were in small group together back in Iconium, you know? Like, so, so Paul writes to Philemon. He's like, hey, Philemon, Onesimus, I don't, know, I don't know what he's done. He's like, but count it to my account. Paul takes it to him. He's like, whatever he owes you, I'll pay it. And here's what Paul says to him. This is so profound. He says this, I appeal to you now for my son Onesimus. He's writing to Philemon, who I've begotten while in my chains. I'm sending him back to you. And I wonder if this point, Onesimus is like, what? I don't know. I'm going back there? Okay. Notice this. You therefore receive him. This is so beautiful. That is my own heart. He's my very heart. How am I going to receive him? Notice Paul's words. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more now to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I want you to see the key for your and my life here. Receive him, listen to this phrase, as now in Christ more than a slave. Where culturally, Onesimus was not, uh, rather, yes, Onesimus was rather nothing more than a slave. Nothing more. His career was all that he was, but now Paul's like, no, no, no. You see, in Christ, your career and your work and whatever the nature of it, it it's not the full totality. It's not the deepest truth about who you are. It's, it's, now, you're not less than your career, okay? Your career and your contributions and your work, you matter. Your work matters. There's dignity to that. But you are more than what you do in Christ. Your identity is deeper than your career the success of your career, the fruit of your business. However your business rises or falls in the near future has nothing to do with the deepest parts of who you are forever in Jesus. This is the gospel, a secured identity. 
the great Tim Keller, the late great Tim Keller, who I miss so much, said, if our identity is in our work rather than Christ, success will go to our heads. We'll puff ourselves up based on how many followers we get on the Instagram. How Can I tell you how tempting this is as a pastor in my line of work? That's why probably a lot of leaders fall is because their identity is tied to the fruit or the success of the ministry. And this is where this can go. We can think of ourselves better than others because of our success. Or worse yet, the higher you go, the harder the fall and the failure will go to your hearts. And maybe some of you feel this today. Maybe you have been spending most of your life trying to build an identity that Jesus has for you for free. Through the shed blood of his cross. Through the promises of his word. And, and let me also say that this applies to many different spheres of life. Maybe your work as a parent. You know, that's, a nine to five, that's more than a 9 to 5. That's a 24-7, actually, is what that job is. But our work identity... Your, your identity is not in what you produce materially. Your identity, I'm telling you, gets saturated in this, is who you are as a son or daughter of God. You're more than your career. You got time for like one or two more? You're like, do I have a choice? And this is like, yes, you're not, you're not my slave, right? Like you could leave. All right. Don't joke about that. Okay. Um, another arena that the gospel transforms with our work, and we just mentioned this, is also the dignity of our work. I quoted Tim Keller a moment ago, and I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. I'm just preaching his book right now. Um, um, trying to get like a book wreck in every week. Last week, we, we were talking about parenting. I recommended John Tyson's The Intentional Father, and it was really cool. I had like five guys in the church that just made me hungry. I had like five guys in the church send me a picture of the book. That Some of them, uh, Jordan Ross sent me the picture. Like after church, he had the book. I'm like, that's like same day delivery awesomeness. Like he went home and the book was there. All right, another book, Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor. The subtitle of this book is Connecting Your Work to God's Work. Usually if you see Tim Keller's name on it, just read it. But um, this, is, uh, this is a really helpful one. Connecting Your Work to God's Work. Um, these ideas, the idea of connecting whatever your work is, like whatever your work is right now. Maybe your work is schoolwork. Maybe your work is manual labor. Maybe your work is, is related to the sphere of education or finance. Like whatever your work, this is a scriptural idea. That all work, listen. That's good work. Good work is God's work. This is Keller's big idea. All work, that's good work. If you're in the business of like pornography, that's like it's not God's work. If you're in the business, if any, and if your business, and we'll talk about integrity, is not advancing the heart and the character and the culture of the kingdom, it's not God's work. But all work, generally, that's good work. We don't make this connection. It's God's work. Now, here's what's amazing. Paul is making this connection between the work of a slave and the work of Christ. Isn't that remarkable? Bond servants, obey your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart. Do it as to Christ, 
Not with eye service as men pleasers. You don't ultimately work for man. You work for God. Do your work as a, as a servant of Jesus, wherever you are, doing, notice this, the will of God from the heart. Now, that can create some theological confusion without any background. You're like, how is slavery the will of God? That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is as you go about your work with a good heart, with good intentions, doing good work for good reasons, you're doing the will of God. How amazing is that to think? Guys, if this is true of a bond servant, how much more is this true for your job tomorrow? That your work matters, the dignity of work, the dignity of work. This was foreign to the Greeks. The Greeks saw, saw work, like anything physical and material was wrong and evil. So like death was liberty, you know, because I didn't have to work anymore because I'm dead, you know. And to the Christian, no, death is an enemy. That's how we think. And we were created to work. This is Genesis 1. God makes us in his image. In the image of God, he creates him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. So God creates man. He puts his blessing upon man. The key is he makes them like him as makers, as workers, as creators. And he blessed them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Here's, here's the, you know, the human project. I love this. God made, I just thought of this. God made humans with a job description. Isn't that cool? He's like, welcome to the world. Welcome to life. I'm God. I just made you. Here's your job description. Be fruitful. Multiply. They're like, sounds good. Fill the earth. Notice this. And subdue it. It's a key word there have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, so every other thing is created to produce. God creates man. He puts him in the garden, and, and humanity's here now to care for what God has created and to subdue creation. And the word there, subdue, in another word, is, is to rule. Later, Adam will, will, will see the, the expression of this as he begins to cultivate the earth. And the idea here is that you take the raw materials of what God has given us here on planet Earth and, and you cultivate them. You make the most of them. You draw out the potential for the good of others. This is the created order. God's like, you're like me. I'm a creative. I'm making you to create good things. I created the world. It's good. I'm creating you in my image. And now you're going to go and do the same. The dignity of work. This is, who, this is what it means to be made in God's image. This is why we work 70% of our lives, because God made us to work. God made us to steward whatever gifts he's given us, which whatever, with whatever role he's called us to play, to put it out into the world. I love this quote by Philip Jensen. He says this. this is a, Philip Jensen is an evangelist and an author. He said, if God came into the world, what would it be like? What would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman, but how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. As, as one who goes to work, puts his hands to what God has put before him. This is the dignity of your work, and I, and I need to say this, okay? All work that's good work is God's work. And, and Keller argues the point for that in every good endeavor. But the point is like, listen, you're not just working to support people that do God's work. I pray you would, in Jesus' name. But your work is not second tier. Just because you don't work at it. Like, we tend to do that, right? The sacred and the secular. Here's the people who are in, they're doing God. That's, we, we joke, like, 
jokingly at the barista, we're like, you're doing the Lord's work here with that latte. But we genuinely look at the people in ministry like they're doing God's work. And I'm just here to kind of work to fund the missionaries. I'm, I'm doing secular work. They're doing sacred work. What? That's not what Paul is saying to these servants. This is what you were created to do. Uh, Keller makes a great argument just for even like, I love, he, he goes to Matthew 7. Where, where, or, uh, sorry, Matthew 6, where Jesus says that God is going to feed the hungry. It's what God promises to do. He sends out missionaries and church planners. Like, pastors should have jobs too, right? But, amen. Amen. But, Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to clothe the naked. I'm going to feed the hungry. And Keller makes the point, how does he do that? He does that through farmers. <laughs> he does that through manufacturers. So here's a, here's a final thought about this. Lee Hardy wrote a great book on this, and most of these ideas are drawn from Calvin and Luther, some of the great reformers that were leading the church to see themselves as the priesthood of all believers, that ministry is not just ministry if it's within the four walls of the church, but the church ultimately exists to equip people to go fulfill their ministry in the 70% of their life in the workplace. That's your ministry. Lee Hardy says this in, the book, in his book, The Fabric of This World. He says, food that nourishes, I love this, roofs that hold out the rain, Shade that protects from the heat of the sun. A lot of love here for the roofers. The satisfaction of the material needs and desires of men and women. When businesses produce material things that enhance the welfare of the community, they are engaged in work that matters to God. I love that. He's using you. There's work dignity. We'll close with this last one. It's work quality. And we're going to end with a reflection on your work today. Christ doesn't merely abolish this social form. He invites us to follow him to be transformed in how we approach whatever social form we find ourselves in. Uh, by the way, no workplace environment is a heavenly perfect environment. They're all broken in their own ways. But the gospel subverts these norms. It changes them. It reorients us. We begin to see authority different. We begin to see our identity different. We begin to see the dignity of what we're doing is not lesser than, but meaningful. Not just to provide for my family, because that in and of itself is a biblical reason to work. And that should be a sermon point. Work harder to make more money to feed yourself, okay? You got a good job. All right, that's not in here. Okay. Lastly, work quality. This is kind of at the heart of what Paul is saying here. Ultimately, whether servant or master, whether boss or employee, whatever, wherever you find on the societal corporate ladder when you received Jesus into your life and you became crucified with him you no longer became your own you're now his your life became his your work relationship your work life now is surrendered to his glory it's now surrendered to his purposes. All that you do, Paul says, even as a servant, is to be done unto him. So now your work is not just for an earthly wage. I love what Paul says here. Your work is for a heavenly wage. Isn't that cool to think of? Like, I'm doing what I'm doing. Mostly, listen, most of the hardest work you're doing, how, how many of us know this to be true? Most of the hardest work you're doing is not seen by other people. 
most of the hardest work you're doing. How many of you guys have ever felt unappreciated for that? Come on, let's be real. I felt unappreciated for that. Here's the good news. You don't work for other people. You're doing that for the Lord. And, and you're doing it as worship unto him, but also you're doing it for a greater wage. Isn't that cool? He's like, you might not get that promotion at that place. Maybe you will. We pray for you, okay? But you will be rewarded in heaven. And we start working for a whole new system. We start, listen, we start working for a whole new audience. His attention is on me, and that changes the quality of my work. Christians, Christians should be the best employees in any workspace. Like a good Christian, Keller says this, I'm just quoting the book. Keller says, a good Christian pilot, when the plane is crashing, a good Christian pilot doesn't go over the intercom and say, okay, I just need to find out who's a Christian in this place before the plane goes down. No. A good Christian pilot lands the plane. That's what Keller says. I love that. How can I be a Christian, whatever it is you do? I do my work as unto the Lord with excellence and integrity because it's meaningful work and it matters for the things of God. I'll invite the team to come out as we close and reflect with this last song. Worship team, if you want to come join me up here. I want to draw our final attention to our ultimate example. And that's our King Jesus, who came, not only worked the job, but he is the summation of all four of these things. Jesus shows us a new way to see authority. Christ was both in authority, showed us how to do that well, all authority. He was also one under authority, submitted to the will of the Father. Christ was someone who, whose very identity was found in his sonship. So he didn't care when the crowds left because his identity was doing the will of God. Christ was the one that shows us even carpentry. The son of God came to the earth, whether a mason or a carpenter. He was busy about his work. And I imagine he did it well as he sought to please his father. Philippians 2 says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus. Here's what we want. Jesus, give me your mind for my work whatever my work is. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, was in the very form of God, but made himself of no reputation. How did Jesus come? He took the form of what? A bondservant. This is Jesus. Coming in the likeness of men. And be found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The way Jesus operated in doing the work of the Father. Therefore, the Bible says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess, and here's the truth, that Jesus Christ is my Lord. So, so what this passage tells you is, number one, Jesus is your Savior. And whether or not you've put your trust in him as your savior yet, he's your savior. He's the only one that can save you. The Bible says he's the savior of all men, but especially those who believe who are saved unto eternal life. Maybe today what you need is to be saved from whatever life you've been building without him.
Salvation is the gift of God through the work of the cross. Jesus taking upon himself your sin to gift you his righteousness, to overcome your greatest enemy of death, to sit at the right hand of God here, to save us, listen, also to, to be our Lord, to be Lord over every aspect of your life. As it's been well said, if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So where in these areas today do you need to just come under the lordship of Jesus? Let's just take a minute to reflect on this with your work. We're going to create an atmosphere of reflection, and then I'll send us out. We want to create a space in here where we can just think on these four things. Where do I need to bring authority, this idea of authority, whether I'm in or under it, under the lordship of Jesus? And just... Begin to talk to God about that. Where, where do I need to get a new identity where I'm not, built, I'm not working for it, but I'm living from it? Where, where do I need to say, God, thank you for where you've placed me. I see the dignity of what I'm doing. It's not lesser than. And where do I need to maybe honestly say, God, I haven't been working as I should, which is unto you. So help me be the best employee my boss has ever seen. Help, help me lead the most Christ-centered, integral, excellence-driven business for your glory that this community...